0: From Melbourne,
1: Peter Credlin.
2: Good evening. Welcome to the show. Great to have your company. Another very busy week. Let's have a look at what's making news right around the country. Australia begins administering booster shots on Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccination. Now, when are you going to get your booster shot? What's involved? Will it be an annual thing? All those answers a bit later in the program. We'll take a closer look, too, at outlaw motorcycle gangs. In your state, they are a significant national problem. Is anything being done? A former Labor power broker tells an anti-corruption hearing the party's most senior leaders engaged in branch stacking. I'll give you my opinion on those hearings today in just a minute. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison heads to coal country in New South Wales into the Hunter on a pre-election blitz.
3: The world will be able to plug in to Australia's hydrogen industry well into the future.
2: But first, let's start the show tonight with a bit of an examination about double standards, not just involving politicians, but the media as well. Why is it, for example, that Conservative MPs who do the wrong thing have their careers destroyed, have to leave Parliament, while Labor MPs can do what's arguably worse and not only stay in the Parliament, but even be promoted to the Ministry? As he himself abundantly confessed, former Liberal frontbencher Tim Smith was an idiot, an idiot who'd let everyone down when he crashed his car while drunk. Not only did he instantly resign as a shadow attorney general in Victoria, but he's now withdrawn from the preselection race and won't contest the election next year after his leader, Matthew Guy, threw him under the bus and declared that he didn't want him in the Liberal parliamentary team. On the way out... Smith copped a backhander from Premier Daniel Andrews who accused the Liberal MP, who's been Andrew's most consistent critic, of having too much to say. So says a Premier <laughs> that's made his state the world's most locked up city and who ran a hotel quarantine program that led to the deaths of 800 locals. Just as bad though was the Premier's faulty memory on MPs behaving badly Given one of his own, Labor's Will Fowles kicked in a door and trashed a hotel room during substance-fuelled rage in Canberra, that culminated in a teary admission of wrongdoing and three months of mental health leave. Two years on, Fowles remains in the Victorian Parliament and he will recontest his seat of Burwood for Labor at next year's state election. But Fowles is not Smith. That was totally different according to the Premier, unfair even. Says the Premier, and I quote Mr Fowles' answered for his conduct, he said. He's been on a journey of hard work and effectively reforming himself. So according to the Victorian Premier, a Labor MP with a self-confessed addiction problem can smash up property and redeem himself, but not a Liberal, especially a prominent and effective one who's done much the same thing. Going back a few years, who can forget federal labor MP Craig Thompson, who allegedly stole funds from the healthcare workers union to pay for nights out on the town and prostitutes? He was propped up in the Julia Gillard hung parliament because without him, Gillard would have been out of office. In this IBAC inquiry too, we know current Labor federal MP Anthony Byrne has admitted to misusing taxpayer funds for electorate staff on factional workers. Not an allegation here. Byrne himself has admitted it. Yet as it stands, Byrne is up for re-election in his seat of Holt next year. But back to today in Melbourne at the explosive corruption watchdog hearings. It all got worse for Victorian Labor as IBAC continued its investigation into branch checking claims and the disgraced former Labor Minister Adam Somurek took the stand. Now, Somyarek has admitted using taxpayer-funded electoral staff to engage in rampant branch stacking, conduct that's almost certainly corrupt. When this conduct came to light, Somurek exited the Labor Party and now sits as a crossbencher but still in the parliament. But the very conduct that's got Somurek before IBAC and effectively ended his public life was apparently the stock in trade back in the day of none other than the Premier himself. According to Somirek in The Witness Box today, and I quote, the left invented branch stacking. And who was the left's chief organiser?
4: You had Anthony Byrne as the chief recruiter uh, from the right and um, I think Daniel Andrews was organising from the left.
2: Now, the I Stand With Dan crowd are already hard at work ridiculing Somurek's testimony as some sort of payback, they say, from an angry and untrustworthy man. And maybe there's a bit of truth in that. But Somirek was credible and reliable enough once to have been made a minister by Daniel Andrews, who must have thought well enough of his one-time factional antagonist and his methods to have made him a minister as soon as Andrews became Premier and to keep him there until these branch stacking allegations came to light last year. Indeed, Andrews promoted the right's branch stacker, whom he'd known well from their days as rival factional organisers, despite the fact that Somirak, while a backbencher, had actually received a one-month suspended jail term for talking on a mobile phone and driving while disqualified back in 2009. Now, it sounds... To me, every bit as serious an offence as Tim Smith's. Yet all that earned Somyurek at the time was a dressing down by the then Premier, John Brumby. There was a lot else in Somurek's testimony today to embarrass even this shameless government, including the claim that Daniel Andrews knew all about the so-called red shirt scandal and he had approved it because misusing taxpayer-funded staff for party political purposes was how you won elections, said Somurek.
4: I think I think the state of mind is, well, you know, you've got a gold standard wrought. Little grey areas are fine, but what was proposed was extraordinary. That's why I resisted. I asked for a letter. Uh, he said he'll get one from Parliamentary Services. He never did. Um, I went to the Premier. I said, do you know what John's doing? He said, yes, yes. Um, Words to the effect, well, you're either going to win an election or not, basically.
2: My point here is not that all MPs should be pure than the driven snow. Few human beings are. But to question why public figures on the right are held to a much higher standard, it would seem, than those on the left. And that even where there are parallels, like Will Fowles and Tim Smith, it's those on the right that end up paying a much higher political price. Alright, let's head to Canberra. We have the headlines now with Sky News political reporter, Andrew Cruthers.
5: The Prime Minister has embarked on his post-lockdown tour of New South Wales and Victoria. The first stop, touring coal country in the Hunter region. With a federal election on the horizon, the Prime Minister wants to reassure regional communities his climate plan won't hurt them.
3: So if you're working here in the Hunter, well, you've got a bright future.
5: The government claims its net zero target will create 62,000 heavy industry jobs and leave Australians on average $2,000 better off. But two weeks after the target was unveiled, the modelling still hasn't been released. Soon. Do you, have a, do you have an estimation then? Soon. When? About a few months? Uh, soon. Labor will also reveal its climate plan soon, but the Prime Minister is keen to seize on the current policy vacuum. And now we hear they're going to legislate to tighten up
3: the safeguard mechanism using heavy regulation to regulate away jobs here in the Hunter.
5: The safeguards mechanism was legislated by former Prime Minister Tony Abbott and remains coalition policy. It requires Australia's largest emitters to keep their net emissions below a certain level.
4: If you're looking for an example of why the government has become such a joke on climate change specifically and the economy more broadly, is because now they are attacking their
6: own policy.
5: Australia's COVID vaccine booster program officially expands to all adults from today. Pfizer will be the preferred booster for all adults, with a third dose administered six months or more after the second.
4: We're off to a flying start. The program only begins today, but already 173,000 people have had boosters.
5: Expanding the vaccine to children aged 5 to 11 may not happen now until early next year. The TGA and ATAGI will closely monitor the use of Pfizer in that age group in the United States.
3: We need to be very careful. We need to be very cautious. And I can tell you that we won't take a further step on this unless there is clear medical advice that it should proceed.
5: And Scott Morrison has taken aim at Western Australia's plan to keep its border closed until as late as February WA's hard border will remain up until 90% of West Australians are fully vaccinated.
3: And the advice we have from the Secretary of Treasury, from Dr Kennedy, is once you go over 80% and you keep things locked down, you are doing more harm than good to your economy.
5: Flight Centre is considering a legal challenge to the hard border.
6: We're looking at a judicial review in the
4: federal court trying to show to the federal court that the border directions are
5: unreasonable. Trudy McIntosh, Sky
2: News, Canberra. Yeah, that was my error there, Trudy McIntosh from Canberra. The Prime Minister's been out and about. Very interesting. It's a a pre-campaign campaign is what I'd call it. Prime Minister was in the Hunter. Let's get some analysis of that and more. National editor of the Australian newspaper, Dennis Shanahan, joins me now from Canberra. Okay, Dennis... We're really into sort of the, the pre-business end of the parliamentary term. They're very keen, the coalition, on those three seats in the Hunter. The Hunter seat, of course, so Joel Fitzgibbon's retiring there. Patterson and Shortland, our two Labor incumbents, hold them. They are running again. I have to say, it's it's a it's a harder sell post Glasgow. Previously, you know, the government was able to say there's a lot of difference between us and Labor on coal and climate change. Now, there's not, uh, not a lot of difference, at least on the 2050 target. How do you think that's going to go for the PM and how did he go today, did you think? Well,
7: look, I think uh, it's uh, as soon as we saw the ivy's vests and the uh, hard hat, we knew that, you know, there's an election around the corner. Uh, we'll see a lot of that. And effectively, we're into an election campaign now. Everyone knows it has to be by May next year. Uh, so we'll just be in campaign mode effectively uh, for the next few months. Uh, whether it's uh, April or May, it's it's immaterial, really. Uh, but I think that uh, the Prime Minister's uh, job, in the Hunter particularly, uh, is a bit harder uh, because the government has now committed uh, to a net zero emissions policy by 2050. Uh, not that this will be able to be uh, worked on by Labor, but it will be exploited uh, by the Conservative candidates, the One Nations uh, candidates, Uh, and uh, others in Queensland and so forth, Five Palmer candidates, uh, they will be able to argue that they are the Conservatives on climate change. Now, this is a big challenge uh, for Scott Morrison, uh, but what he is now trying to do overall, and by starting in the Hunter, he started at the hardest bit, what he wants to do now is talk about the economy. He doesn't want to mention Glasgow or Paris, for that matter, Again, he wants to talk about Newcastle, uh, he wants to talk about uh, Gladstone, and he also wants to talk about jobs. Now, this is about making the economy the centre of his campaign. And to do that, and when you look at it, uh, the the, uh, challenge the Prime Minister faces is he has to gain a net three seats at the next election to win... That is to actually hold government. Now, he has that means he has to hold all the seats he has in Queensland and maybe pick up a seat, hold all the seats he has in New South Wales and maybe pick up a seat, preferably from Labor, but maybe also from an independent, uh, and maybe pick up a seat in Tasmania from a Labor person. There's a chance he could pick up one in the Northern Territory, but that's always difficult to tell. So, the election campaign is going to concentrate on the Eastern Seaboard. That's where most of these seats are, and that's where the, the government intends to concentrate its rural and regional campaign. And we saw today Anthony Albanese really plugging away at uh, Scott Morrison's attempts uh, to uh, encourage people to vote for the Liberals or the Nationals uh, in the Hunter because what Mm. Anthony Albanese is arguing, not that they uh, won't uh, be able to uh, meet zero emissions by 2050, but that they won't keep their promises on local goods and jobs and so on. This is going to be a really local campaign. Anthony Albanese has already started to talk about failed promises during vaccine delivery. And this is where Gladys Berejiklian hasn't done... Scott Morrison, a great deal of favour in Western Sydney and in the Hunter Valley. And while she's popular in the eastern suburbs and the northern suburbs, her legacy in Western Sydney is toxic. We've seen Federal uh, Labor MP uh, Ed Husic today delivering a powerful speech about the way that Western Sydney has been neglected by brand Liberal. We're going to see a lot of this in local seats And it's going to be concentrated on the eastern seaboard in part because Mark McGowan is going to keep Scott Morrison out of Western Australia for as long as possible.
2: I guess the issue too for the Prime Minister, just on WA, of course, uh, Zach Kirkup took to the state election where they were annihilated beyond even opposition. I mean, the National Party is now in opposition, not the Liberal Party in the West. Uh, But they were annihilated because he took to the election and was smashed the very same environmental policy that Scott Morrison now has. Now, I can't see that's going to be a winner in the West. Not easy for Labor either, but it makes the the PM's job of that hold position in Western Australia harder. And going back to the issue in the Hunter, of course, at that recent state New South Wales by-election, we had a 21% swing to One Nation. They're going to capitalise on that in the Hunter. Now, some of those votes won't go to Labor, sure, where the Coalition, I think six months ago, would have thought they were in in with a chance in uh, Shortland and Paterson, I think that's more problematic and the winners there will be minor parties, as you say, like One Nation. So it'll come down to how well they can sandbag along the the east and maybe pick up some seats there in in New South Wales. I have to say, the PM I know is going to Melbourne this week after New South Wales. I think Victoria is very hard. Despite the devastation of, of two years of the Andrews pandemic, Of course, Victorians are still backing in uh, the Premier over the Prime Minister, and that's the ground I think the the Prime Minister is going to want to pick up. Go to this issue of the safeguard mechanism. It's a cap, a regulatory cap, on companies that make uh, significant emissions. It could be an opportunity for the Prime Minister. Let's have a listen of a bit of a, a, a fight that went on today about this particular issue.
4: Will you look at the safeguard mechanism... No. To reduce that?
1: There's no taxes in our plan and there won't be.
7: There's um, a suite of measures that are available. There's the safeguards mechanism, which is where you're heading, I think, David, which is a government policy which they promised would reduce emissions. So will you expand the safeguards mechanism? Well, I'm not
3: announcing safeguards policy on your show this morning, David. It's my melancholy duty to inform you. I mean, the Labor Party is against the Curry, Curry gas gas power station. Um, and now we hear they're going to legislate to tighten up the safeguard mechanism using heavy regulation to regulate away jobs here in the Hunter.
2: Now, I know it's a complex policy nuance, but already you could see with Angus Taylor then and the Prime Minister, they're distilling it into basically a tax. So do you think that's an opportunity that the PM can smell today?
7: Well, I don't think there's any doubt about that, uh, Peter. Uh, and let's remember, it was Tony Abbott uh, who introduced the uh, cap. Uh, it was Tony Abbott who succeeded in campaigning against getting rid of the carbon tax. And now it is Angus Taylor and Scott Morrison who are saying technology, not taxes. That is their mantra on climate change. In The Hunter, uh, Scott Morrison is able to point to on-the-ground examples. And this is the problem that Labor has. It's not just the curry curry plant. It is other uh, projects which Labor has uh, uh, opposed And it's also funding from ARENA, which Labor continues to join the Greens in the Senate to oppose this funding. Now, these are things for projects which are green projects and which, in fact, Labor supports. Uh, But they are locked in with the Greens to oppose this. So this is where the stuff on the ground is going to count. Not so much the net zero by 2050, it's the stuff on the ground, the curry curry plant in the Hunter. Uh, and mm-hmm. these are the areas where the Prime Minister needs to get in, dig in on the existing protections of jobs uh, like the uh, the cap and just point to Labor time and time again, as he is saying, everything they do is about a tax. Chris Bowen says, I don't want to talk about what our cap policy will be. That leaves the door open. Scott Morrison, to say they want to reintroduce carbon taxes and this is going to hurt Labor until they get their uh, climate change policy out there in detail to be able to argue. it. Until then, the government is going to go on a big scare campaign, which will have more effect, I think, than the net zero by 2050. It's so far off. When people talk about the curry curry plant, that's much more important than the net zero by 2050 target.
2: I'll ask you again just before we go quickly, Dennis, uh, more chat today that there could be an early election this side of Christmas. I think it's Buckley's and none, but what do you think?
7: <laughs> Absolute rubbish. Uh, there's there's no way <laughs> that we can... <laughs> have It's just not physically possible. Uh, I think that uh, as all along, the Prime Minister has been aiming to have an election next year. Of course, he's thought about it. Uh, ERC, the, the budget uh, budget uh, razor gang, has been meeting regularly. It's getting ready to present a budget. The Prime Minister's already said the intent is to have a budget. So the key is mm. you have a budget in April and then you go straight to an election and that election is in May. And this is when right. the economy will be rebounding. We know that in March, the beginning of March... That's when the government will get the December quarter, this huge boost to spending we're going to see over Christmas. That's when it will materialise at the beginning of March when they're in the beginning, you know, of the pre-budget and pre-election real election campaign. So, no, I don't think there's any possibility of an election before Christmas.
2: I completely agree with you on the economic underpinning of those uh, would-be election dates. You're spot on there, Dennis. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Peter. All right. Hey, now, you'd struggle, wouldn't you, to find a wider grin than the one worn by mining magnate turned renewables tycoon Andrew twiggy Forrest in Glasgow last week. Australia's richest man was everywhere at COP26, calling for an end to coal and to gas and to oil all in front of the cameras while pressing the flesh with political elite behind the cameras. Now, he was flanked by his new errand boy, Malcolm Turnbull, and Forrest, through his future technologies or industries platform, even scored an invite to the Biden administration's new first movers coalition. That's an alliance of blue-chip multinationals all committed to going green. But has Forrest and Fortescue perhaps bitten off more green projects than they can chew. New analysis from the Australian newspaper estimates that the total sum of his promised green spending is at a staggering $195 billion. And it's not just for his homegrown projects here in Australia either. It includes $80 billion for a dam in the Congo and a combined $20 billion for hydro projects in Ethiopia and Kenya. Here at home, there's no word yet on whether Fortescue will hand back the $300 million worth of fuel tax credits it received last year after consuming some 700 million litres of diesel. Now, we don't know whether Fortescue will emit less than its 2 million tonnes of carbon emissions this year, the 2 million that they pumped out last year. We'll see if that happens. It remains to be seen whether he'll also curve the kilometres racked up in his $98 million private jet. Maybe he might buy some offsets so that he doesn't just talk the climate talk, he actually walks or flies it as well. Hmm. We'll see, won't we? We'll see. Coming up after the break, former Labor power broker tells an anti-corruption hearing the party's most senior leaders engaged in branch stacking. More on that after the break. Welcome back. You're watching Credlin. Well, after six months ago, 84-year-old Jane Malashek became the first Australian to get vaccinated against COVID-19. After that, now the booster program has officially kicked off. According to former Deputy Chief Medical Officer Dr Nick Coatsworth, it's critical for the elderly to get their third jab, along with those that are immunocompromised to help strengthen their protection against the virus. But he's got a clear message for the fit and the healthy among us. Don't worry, don't panic, but don't clog up the system. Dr Coatesworth joins me now from Canberra. Thank you for your time. Great to uh, get into some detail on this issue if we can. Um, we know that the priority groups once again will come first. Um, I'm one of those that are due for my booster in December, so only a month away, but you're saying if we're fit and healthy, we should sort of stand back a, a bit and let others go through the system. Give us some give us some advice.
1: Well, Peter, I mean these are these are important things to to discuss. We we know that we need to focus on the most vulnerable in our community. There's uh, there's been a lot of focus recently on children who are perhaps uh, the least vulnerable in our community. When we know that if you're elderly or you're immune compromised or you take medication to suppress your immune system. That your response to the initial vaccine can be attenuated it might not be as robust as say for yourself or, or or myself and so we need to let those people get the booster first and of course that program's been open for for some weeks now but there will be a lot of australians out there who who have normal functioning immune systems who are in their 30s and 40s who are coming up to for their booster to be due and it doesn't need to be done you know, on the day uh, that it's due, six months past your, your second dose of either Astra or Pfizer. Uh, but it does need to be done in, in the coming months and it will give you added uh, protection because your immunity does wane over time. This is probably uh, likely to be a three-dose uh, actual regime and, and and we do need it. Look, the only other thing I want to mention is that the criticality is mm. we get our boosters here in Australia have actually you know, doing primary vaccination uh, courses around the rest of the world. You know, we're talking about entire continents that haven't got anywhere near 20 or 30%. I'm, I'm thinking about the African continent, and that's where me, uh, the, the sort of variants of concern will emerge if we don't do both. I mean, sure, boost us, that's fine, but we do need to uh, need to focus on global vaccine equity because the variants are gonna come from the places that have low vaccination rates.
2: I think that's a point that, that often goes missing, that if we were to vaccinate ourselves to the hilt, let's say we're doing that anyway, we're up into the 90% as likely for double vaccinations. It, we can do all of that. Once our borders are open and people are coming in and out of Australia, the risk of variants in countries with very, very low vaccinations is real. So if we thought Delta was bad, it could come up something else down the track that's right and it may not be something that our vaccinations will, will protect us from if we're not careful.
1: Precisely. I mean, the the good news, of course, with the novel vaccine technologies, whether you're talking about the AstraZeneca type of vaccine, that probably takes about 12 weeks to modify to cope with a new variant. And the mRNA vaccines are even better. They probably only take about six weeks to modify. So I think if variants of concern do emerge, we've got you know, well within our armamentarium to, to deal with them, but the issue is how how many people around the world have to wait whilst we're we're busy vaccinating ourselves. For you know, it's going to be a significant benefit to us, sure, but I mean, it's going to be of much more benefit to people who have never had a primary course um, to get their vaccination. I, I do find it interesting that the people who promote very high vaccination rates in Australia and boosters and vaccinating our kids—they're actually usually the ones. Uh, that are looking towards the developing world for improved global health outcomes, and they seem to have been uh, rather silent on that.
2: Well, then, just on that point of children, we know the United States are they're greenlighting children between the ages of 5 and 11 to, to be vaccinated. We haven't gone down that path Yes, I know that they're, they're having conversations in Canberra. Um, given that point you make about vaccine equity, should we be vaccinating our children, or are they not the priority that, that other places in the world are?
1: Peter, I'm, I'm constantly fascinated by people who look towards the US as a sort of a paragon of virtue when it comes to COVID-19. Unfortunately, they've had uh, significant problems in the management of this pandemic. When you look towards nations that are closer to us in terms of their success stories. We're talking about the Scandinavian nations. We're talking about the Netherlands. We're talking about the UK. None of these nations are rushing towards vaccinating five to 11-year-olds. So I would simply ask viewers tonight, why should we be the second to approve the vaccine for five to 11-year-olds, when the country that has done is the country that's managed the pandemic um, the least effectively, as probably any OECD country.
2: You've been really strong throughout the whole of this uh, pandemic to talk about the shadow pandemic, the mental health harm, the the impact of lockdowns and and, and kids not going to school, all the things we've talked about here on this program and elsewhere. There's a study in the Medical Journal of Australia today, two out of three young Australians who have been accessing frontline medical services like Headspace and others are still either unwell or even more unwell two years down the track. Now, we've never spent more on mental health services uh, leading into this pandemic and obviously now in the pandemic. We, We spent literally billions and billions and billions. So what's going wrong?
1: Well, I mean, I think what's going wrong is that we found out um, curiously that to live as a productive, uh, mentally well member and engaged member of society and, and not be under stress, um, you, you, you can't be locked down for significant periods of time. I mean, who knew? It seems to be so, so straightforward. But I, I guess, you know, there was a time when we needed heavy restrictions and there's a time when we need to shift our policy and recognise... That the consequence of those restrictions has been severe in terms of mental illness and will probably outlast anything to do with long, long COVID, for example. Uh, and, and so I think I think perhaps we've been slow to shift our view towards these things: the importance of education, the importance of mental health, and the the real balancing act, that public health is. So there are far too many people, unfortunately, that that sort of take the view that you can. In, impose restrictions that you can drive COVID case numbers down and you you mm. keep schools closed. Um, and on the other hand, you, you sort of ignore, well you don't ignore, but you accept these other consequences and necessary evil. And, and I don't think they are. I think that um if you can change your policy with the change in risk environment, then uh then you get good outcomes on both sides.
2: Point very well made. Dr. Coatesworth, thank you for your time. Thank you. Right, I want to turn now to the extraordinary evidence given by former Andrews Government Minister and Labor power broker Adam Somirek at IBAC today in Victoria. And to do that, I want to bring in the Leader of the Opposition in the Upper House, Victorian Liberal MP David Davis, who joins me now from Melbourne.
8: Let's get into it.
2: I start at the top of the... Thank you, David. I started at the top of the show with a little bit of background to the hearing today and some of the material coming out. Adam Somurek says Daniel Andrews dismissed concerns about the red shirts scandal this is when the labour party used taxpayer-funded staff to campaign ahead of the 2014 election when they were first elected in should ibac call the premier now
4: absolutely the evidence today were bombed from evidence very damaging evidence that was provided by mr someric you know let's be clear to people in the state he's a former minister a former labor minister uh, he's under questioning from Chris Carr, SC, and from the IBAC commissioner himself, Robert Ridley. You know, these are very senior people. He, he described the red shirt rort as a gold standard A gold standard rort. He said that he had raised the matter with the Premier and the Premier had said, do you want to win the election? Uh, we are effectively, you know, dismissing queries and saying we've got to do this. Uh, This is actually extraordinary evidence. Um, And he he was also very clear that the Premier was deeply involved in branch stacking in the um, earlier period that was referred to, a long period of time ago in one sense, but, you know, actually a a, a window into the Premier's um, activities. And further, this extraordinary stuff around the um, use of people in offices, the red shirts, just, I mean, to again fill people in interstate. Uh, in Victoria, ahead of the 2014 election, a Liberal national government in power, Labor in opposition, used parliamentary money, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of parliamentary money, uh, to employ staff to go out campaigning formally. The Ombudsman pinged them. She held hearings. She worked through the evidence, and she forced them to pay a lot of that money back. I mean, but but since when do you get to, um, you know, rob a bank and then you get to pay the money back and it's all okay. No, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. No, it's not fine. This is about standards and it's about the behaviour of the Premier, it's about the behaviour of Labor MPs. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I I think this stinks to high heaven, Peter. And that's what Mr Someric was, in effect, saying, admitting today, and he was part
2: of it. Yes. Yeah, and let me just to be legally clear, obviously Adam Somurek admitted to behavior involving himself, so that's an admission, not an allegation. And what he said about the Premier was an allegation. We know that Anthony uh, Byrne made evidence, admissions. But... He admitted that he did X, Y, and Z. And we know the Ombudsman found that red shirts was a rot, and the Labour Party tried, or the, the Premier tried all the way up to the High Court to keep that out of the public domain. So so there's quite a damning a set of facts there, Hi. and obviously if the Premier wants to dispute it, he could front the Commission. But what I find interesting, you know, go back to the Coat inquiry into the hotel quarantine disaster last year, David Davis, and we had a, a, a member of Parliament who quit, Jenny Makarkos, the former Health Minister. She said, she pleaded with Jennifer Coat, call me back under oath because I can test what the Premier had to say. She was not recalled and the, and the inquiry was shut down. This this current instance here with the conflict, potential conflict between what the Premier is saying and what Adam Somyarek is saying, the only way you can reconcile it is to put the Premier in the stand, isn't it?
4: With sworn evidence. He has to give evidence under oath um, as to an answer to the very specific allegations that have been put by Mr Somyarek. These are very serious allegations that, you know, in effect he knowingly proceeded. Uh, with this process to win the election, to arguably steal the election. And um, he did this knowingly and after having been warned. So, you know, this is quite serious. Um, and now we find Mr Somyarek and others also, uh, you know, very much in the gun uh, for their activities with uh, a series of electorate office rorts that, you know, really don't, don't, don't stand up in, in themselves.
2: I'm going to ask you, too, about uh, the explosive report from the Independent Parliamentary Budget Office in Victoria. It's accusing the Andrews government of hiding the state's budgetary position. I mean, this is extraordinary. I, I, I put as much weight on this, I have to say, as the evidence today at IBAC. It says the government is shifting its own fiscal targets. It's not transparent on the issue of yeah. Victoria's climbing debt. Uh, what do you make about this?
4: Well, I think it's a very serious report. It's a carefully modulated report. It's from an independent office. This is an office that's funded. It it operates separate from government, and it's um, in a position to actually provide independent reports to the parliament. Uh, It has done that in this case, and the measures that report on the budget are a moving feast under this government. I mean, last year, they they hid the budget paper number four, which is the one that provides the report on all of the big projects across the state. You know, this is extraordinary. Um hiding things and the debt into the future, massive growth in debt, not able to be properly assessed because of the moving targets, because of the government's churn with these um with these reporting mechanisms. And even simple questions. You ask the government, how much did this level crossing? cost that you've finished. They will not answer. They will not answer. I mean, these are basic questions. You know, people, if you ask, you've got 40 level crossings finished, tell us how much each of them cost. That doesn't seem unfair. Well, they will not say. They will not say. And the reason they won't say is because all their projects have blown out. They've lost control of the budget. The budget position is quite serious. And, you know, this is what the budget office is pointing to. It's important, Peter, to understand...
2: I've got to leave it there. I've got to leave it... Yep. I'm sorry, David, I've got to leave it there. But I will come back because your point about state debt in particular, I think we can go through some of the nuts and bolts of those numbers and compare Victoria with the other states. We've got a good position right across the board. Thank you, David Davis, for your time tonight.
4: Pleasure. All
2: right. Now, the first cracks between the Coalition and Labor have emerged on the AUKUS submarine deal, as I said they would... The ALP's Foreign Affairs Spokeswoman Penny Wong has told the Lowy Institute podcast that she wants a review into the handling of the AUKUS announcement if Labor's elected. Now, Wong isn't saying she wants a review of AUKUS itself, but read the lines here. Read between them as well. Just way you spin it, Labor's having a bet each way. And it comes just two days ahead of a National Press Club address, by none other than the former Prime Minister and fierce AUKUS opponent, Paul Keating. Watch this space. All right, still to come. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, they are in a world of pain. Let me take you through what I've got in terms of polling after the break.
4: My name is Manny Karoudis, and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on CrimeX Plus on Apple Podcasts.
2: Welcome back. You're watching Credlin. Well, the canter towards a global carbon tax is becoming a gallop. Last week, it was revealed that former Foreign Minister turned now OECD Chief Chief Matthias Cormann is pushing for an international carbon pricing regime. Today, he's been joined by one of Australia's most influential businessmen, former Dow Chemical CEO, Andrew Liveris. He says a global carbon tax is the best way to consolidate the progress made at COP26. I don't know about progress. Mm. Let's see what my panel makes of all of this. Host of the Friday Showdown, Rita Panahi, joining me from Melbourne, and also from Melbourne as well, former Communications Minister, Labor man, Stephen Conroy. I'll go to you if I can on this one first. I don't think there's much to crow about out of COP26, Stephen, but a global carbon tax. Gee, I bet you Julia Gillard and others are happy about that.
6: Well, look... Matthias Cormans come on board, it's not going to be long before Scott Morrison has to find a way to do it, whether he'll admit that that's what he's going to do after the election or not. So uh, he's, uh, he's moved a fair way, he's uh, dragged the majority of the Liberal Party with him, uh, he's got a majority of the National Party with him, uh, and the rest of the Parliament is pretty much there. So there's only a very small minority of hardcore members of the Liberal Party, and the National Party that are standing in the way. The Business Council want this. There, there is now an emerging consensus which is just isolating a small number of hardline Liberals and Nationals.
2: I don't know about that, Rita. I I think I must have been watching another event in Glasgow. Stephen thinks it was uh, all that and some.
8: (laughs) Well, yeah, the the progress made at COP26, what progress precisely is that? Uh, A few Western nations committing to high electricity prices and massive handouts to a bunch of very wealthy rent seekers. That, to me, doesn't sound like progress. uh, Until they can tell us how they're going to actually achieve what they've committed to achieve, and how much it's going to cost us, it's all just stupid jabber And until they can actually articulate how we're getting there rather than just relying some imaginary uh, technology that may or may not be developed in the future, then really we're not on solid ground, are we?
2: Stephen, I had a chat just before with David Davis, the Victorian Liberal MP in the Upper House, and I talked about the, the evidence today from Adam Somyrac. He name-checked you a few times at IBAC. I'm going to give you a right of reply. What did you make of it all?
6: Well, look, I think he... he uh, someone did a count and told me that they... he mentioned my name 24 times before lunch. Uh, and it, he kept going <laughs> after lunch. But uh, I, I, I thought it was a little bit creepy, frankly, that uh, uh, he is so obsessed uh, to want to talk about me all the time. I left politics five years ago. Uh, but... One of the problems in these sort of IBAC uh, scenarios is you don't get a write a reply at the time. You don't get to cross-examine. I mean, uh, and, you know, we've seen many criticisms of ICAC uh, that people just get tossed to the wolves. People who are on oath can say absolutely anything they want due to qualified privilege. They can't be sued. Mm -hmm. They can just make any allegation. And he made allegations against... I lost count of the names of people he mentioned, starting with the Premier, uh, I mean, I'm presuming Mr somirek made those same allegations that he made against the Premier today to the Ombudsman when he uh, gave evidence to the Ombudsman in the uh, Red Shirts inquiry. I'm, I'm sure he's made that allegation publicly before. Uh, but he'll just keep trying to make these allegations and smear everybody. Uh, on the basis of his own behaviour, to try and spread the smear around as much as he can. I mean, to give you a simple example, he kept talking about how everybody did this and it had gone on for years. This was The, the National Conference ballot he keeps talking about was the first National Conference plebiscite of members in Victorian history. It was a brand-new rule introduced in 2016. And he says, it's what's always been done. It was the first time, so I mean, all right. Some I'm, of evidence I'm going to try and keep out of up. the
2: weeds. I'm going to try and keep out of the yeah. weeds. But of course, uh, you're a private citizen now. The premier is not so much, and of course, he could turn up tomorrow and uh, put his side of the story out there under oath. And that would be nice and quite refreshing for Victorians, I think. All right, let's go, reader. If I can, to the United States, news outlets are calling the general election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as a disaster, the President and the Vice President, they're in a world of political pain. A USA Today poll shows Biden's approval has sunk to just 38%. Harris is even worse. She's down to 28%. I don't think I've seen numbers this
8: bad so early in a first term. They're they're not the dynamic duo, are they? Oh, no. I'll just tell you one thing, though. In retrospect, the Biden camp were very clever in selecting Kamala Harris as his veep. Because if there was anyone even remotely half-competent, they would be a threat to Joe Biden right now because he is struggling. He is just every week showing us that he's not up to the job. The cognitive decline is undeniable. It's there every time you hear him speak, every time you hear him questioned. He is not up to the task, and these poll numbers, despite the fact that the overwhelming majority of the media have given them cover, they really haven't held them to accountable for the multiple crises occurring in the US from the losing control of the southern border to the inflation crisis. to so the fact that they've got more COVID deaths in 2021 than they had in 2020, despite the fact that the Biden administration inherited three good vaccines. So it's a disaster. And the polls reflect it. Stephen, just quickly.
6: Yeah, look, I couldn't agree more. I think since the pullout of Afghanistan, which was such a debacle, uh, Biden uh, has lost Virginia last week. Uh, If I was, you know, a Democrat, I'd be starting to worry uh, about uh, their prospects in next year's uh, midterms.
2: Midterms. Agreed. Stephen, uh, Rita Panahy, Stephen Conway, thank you for your time. All right, quick break. Outlaw motorcycle gangs right around the country, but we'll look at your state, state by state, national problem. It's still significant. A troubled young woman, her evil parents.
8: We never had any issues between us.
2: Has justice been done? Oh, I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's
5: most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome back. Well, the big five of the motorcycle outlaw gangs, Hells Angels, Comancheros, Banditos, Mongols and Rebels. And all of their syndicates, historically linked to a laundry list of violent crimes, including shootings and arsons. Their home is this thing called a clubhouse. It's the spiritual place where they like to meet and do many other things. Despite being banned in Queensland and South Australia and targeted by police in New South Wales, the clubhouses are alive and kicking here in Victoria, including on the suburban streets of Melbourne. Melbourne. Associate Professor Mark Locks is the best expert in the business when it comes to these outlaw motorcycle gangs. He joins me now from Brisbane. OK, Mark, keep it nice and simple for us. It's a real worry. Why are these clubhouses so important to the bikers and their associates?
0: Most motorcycle gang members join because they're looking for brotherhood. They build the brotherhood in two social events, riding together and socialising in the clubhouse together. So the clubhouse is the heart of that group of 15 to 25 guys who belong to that particular local chapter of the Outlaw Club. So it's a very, very uh, important place and probably spiritual, as you just said.
2: They do tend to uh, ride in packs. I was driving on the highway yesterday and there would have been about 15 Mongol Mm. um, bike riders uh, in and around my car and other cars. They're quite intimidating. I was glad it was during the day and you know, not at night. Um, They seem to have a growing presence in Victoria because not just the growth in Victoria, but because other states have in part shut them down and sent them down to Victoria. That's my, my sense of it. Is that right?
0: That is correct. So criminologists would call it displacement. And the bikies who were displaced, especially from Queensland back in 2013, were the ones, that 10%, who were doing most of the criminal activity. So you got a lot of the people that were appearing in the press up here before the laws came in, the Vlad laws came in, and they moved down mostly to Melbourne, some went to South Australia, but Melbourne picked up most of the ex-Queensland bikies, and you still saw people move as the other states brought in their tougher versions of the laws as well. So... A lot of the politics, especially the fights between clubs, the disputes over who runs clubs, has moved to Victoria and Melbourne in particular.
2: Does that mean there has been, since the clubhouses were shut in Queensland and South Australia, a clean-up in those states?
0: They are definitely still in Queensland and still in South Australia, but I do a weekly wrap-up of the media on motorcycle gangs And the amount of press that they get in Queensland and South Australia, even taking into account the smaller population sizes, is much, much, much smaller than Victoria. So they have a much larger and much more active presence in Victoria than they do in the other states.
2: So what happens in Victoria? How How does the government take control of this issue?
0: Well, the government can try and bring in the same laws as the other states have. Uh, It's questionable which version of the laws was best, whether it was the Vlad laws or whether it was the anti-association laws. But the benefit for the local public is the disappearance of the clubs, riding in packs, riding with their colours, socialising in their colours and crowding that social disturbance and the intimidation. The other thing that goes away if the clubhouses go away is the collateral damage to members of the public when there's violence between clubs and they just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, nearby a clubhouse where shootings occur, firebombings occur, or even near the residences that other clubs mistakenly believe one of their opponents lives at. And innocent people are the subject to a drive-by shooting. But the visual presence of the clubs has disappeared, in Queensland especially, and to a lesser extent in the other states, mainly because Queensland was first.
2: Well, yeah, you've written the policy there for the Victorian government in the next election, if they're brave enough to enact it. Mark Locks, thank you for your time. All right, thank you for your company. Great to be with you this Monday. Long, busy week ahead. Andrew Bolt's up next, of course, but I'm back here tomorrow night at 6.
3: Hi, it's Gary Jubelin here. Do you want a real and raw look inside the world of crime? Well, then check out my podcast, I Catch Killers, where I interview people from all sides of the
4: law. I draw my firearm and I went into fight mode. I wanted to find and confront this government. I
5: mean, I'm not getting verbals, am I? <laughs> I
3: shouldn't have trusted you. See, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to open my mind up to uh, defence I know, it's
4: just
5: begging to be said.
3: Yeah. Fair call, fair call. We have amazing guests every week. Search for I Catch Killers wherever you get your podcasts.